0: This is Guns and
1: Butter. There's
2: In my view, and I've given a lot of thought to this, I think that the struggle against Zionism is the moral equivalent of the struggle against slavery. I think it has the same moral weight as the struggle against slavery, okay? every emancipator who, who looks towards the possibilities of freeing a whole people. We're talking, the, the moral critique of slavery, the fight against slavery, is because a whole people is, is enslaved. And enslavery means a whole people is subjected to the superior power and, and illegitimate authority of another people. So the peoples of Palestine are enslaved by the Zionist state of Israel.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Joel Covell. Today's show, Overcoming Zionism. Joel Covell is currently professor of social studies at Bard College in New York. He has had a varied and distinguished career as a scholar and as an activist and as a former psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. In 1998, he was the Green Party candidate for U.S. Senate from New York. Joel Covell is the author of nine books, including The Enemy of Nature, The End of Capitalism, or The End of the World. He is editor of the scholarly quarterly Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Information on his recently released DVD criticizing Al Gore's position on climate change, A Really Inconvenient Truth, is available at com. Joel Covell's most recent book, Overcoming Zionism, creating a single democratic state in Israel-Palestine became the center of much controversy in 2007. Today's presentation by Joel Covell was given on February 15, 2008 in Berkeley, California. The event was sponsored by the NorCal Support Group of the International Solidarity Movement and by the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists Social Justice Committee. Joel Covell.
2: I do think I might want to read to you the pages of my book. First of all, because you again get a, at least some flavor of the book itself. And the rest of the talk will be maybe contain a word or two from the book, but mostly be a commentary on what I'm going to read you now. And uh, this is from the eighth chapter of the book, which is called uh, Slouching Towards Jerusalem. And uh, the chapter is divided into two parts, the first part being a critical analysis of the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers that infest the West Bank and much of Israel. And the second is a critique of the liberal uh, Zionist historian, Benny Morris, who actually made some major contributions towards the unmasking of the myths that surrounded particularly the wars of 1948, which were always considered to be uh, pure defensive wars on the part of the struggling Zionists against the Arab hordes and uh, Morris and others such as Elon Pape, but Morris in this case made major contributions to the history by showing that what happened in 1948 was in fact massive ethnic cleansing which was deliberately planned and uh, that the uh, standard story was simply what I just said namely a myth uh, it was remarkable about Morris's findings, though, was that instead of drawing the conclusion that there was something wrong about this, he then went on to say, this is the way it should have been, and he's only, he was only sorry that they didn't do the job fully and get rid of all of the Palestinians, which which identifies him as uh, a member of the species Homo Zionismus. And um, he gave us a remarkable uh, interview, which is published in the liberal paper, Haaretz, Israeli paper, in January of 2004. And I'm gonna read you from the last part of my discussion of that interview uh, because it it gives a good vantage on how my book treats this problem and opens a space for the remainder of the talk. And um, and so here I go. employing another well-worn trope of justification that the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians was justifiable because done in a great cause. Morris says, quote, "Even the great American democracy could not have been created without the annihilation of the Indians. There are cases in which the overall final good justifies harsh and cruel acts that are committed in the course of history." Unquote. Then I continue, "This is a you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs argument and is a well-known rationalization for aggression. It is a dull, heartless, and mechanical view of history which in this instance opens upon some reflections. The annihilation of the American Indians can truly be called a kind of Holocaust differing from what Nazi Germany did to the Jews and others, such as Romani, chiefly in the extended way it unfolded and in the markedly different prior histories of perpetrator and victim. It is certainly the case that the United States, as it exists today, would not have arisen without annihilating the Indians, just as it would not have arisen, as we know it, without chattel slavery of black Africans. But the United States, as it exists, and what Morris calls the quote, great American democracy, unquote, should not be conflated. There have been contributions made by the United States to democracy, but these may be reckoned as having arisen despite the atrocious record of Indian killing, either as the product of innumerable struggles from below to democratize the conditions of life, or more pointedly, from various appropriations of Indian ways, These latter would include the lessons the framers of United States democracy learned from the egalitarian Indian societies, especially of the Iroquois nations, and also the countless examples of the free intermingling of common peoples, the going native on the part of whites, especially women, as well as communal arrangements between Indians, escaped slaves, and poor whites at times of a frankly utopian character. The American democracy would have turned out much better had such processes prevailed instead of the genocide against the indigenous. This could have happened, that it didn't happen is a matter of having the wrong class forces ending up on top, from which place they could impose their economic dominion and systematic racism, according to the ethos of Puritan elites. It was these who carried out the extermination of Indians, often co-opting the lower classes into their project And it is to a very great extent this annihilation, along with slavery, indentured servitude, and the violent suppression of workers that has made America a racist society and eventuated in a nation state whose democratic facade has accompanied and helped to conceal an endlessly repeated record of blood, fire, and lawless intervention. Benny Mars puts on rose-colored glasses when looking at Israel's great protector, but the country of which Simon Boulevard said back in 1828 that it was destined to plague the world in the name of democracy and which entered the 21st century with a man of the caliber of George W. Bush as its president and a population riddled with Christian fundamentalism has a lot to answer for, including, to be sure, its partnership with Israel. There are a few generalizations that hold up across the historical spectrum. One of these is the necessity of coming to grips with one's national past in order not to repeat its crimes. The United States has a dreadful record of not accepting responsibility for its history, and so it constantly repeats its crimes. Think of how much better the great American democracy would be if it were to begin to confront its murderous past. One sign of which would be to build a great museum about the annihilation of indigenous cultures and another one on the slave trade and its consequences alongside or even heaven forfend instead of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, which directs attention from America's lost history. Because what the United States did to its Indians and black slaves is at the center of its existence and demands priority. And the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem should be accompanied by a museum along the lines of the Great Museum in Johannesburg that gives witness to the crimes of a racist apartheid regime and to their overcoming, because the racist expropriation and oppression of an indigenous people is at the center of the existence of Israel, just as it was of apartheid South Africa, and will not begin to be overcome unless it is recognized and reflected upon. One might imagine a series of exhibition rooms in such a museum dedicated to the various transgressions spawned by Zionism from its inner being, inexorable deductions from the bad idea. The second chapter, which is a, parenthetically, which is the history of Zionism, is titled The Unnatural History of a Bad Idea. Uh, and that's just what I think of Zionism. It's simply a bad idea. More than simply a bad idea, but it starts as a bad idea. Okay. Um, so these are the uh, uh, hypothetical hoped for rooms in the history museum that should be built in Jerusalem about the transgressions of the Israeli state. First room, from its beginnings, Israel has been internally compelled to annihilate an existing indigenous society. Once it achieved statehood, and especially as it became the occupier of what Palestinian land was left over from 1948, it turns itself into a machine for the manufacture of human rights abuses. These latter necessarily and normally configure about an all-pervading ethnocentricity that readily turns racist and is sown throughout society. The culmination is a system as structurally racist as apartheid South Africa, however distinct many of the external features may be. Israel produces militarism with its associated disregard for life in every corner of society and spreads this around the region and beyond, attacking its neighbors in an incessant drumbeat of aggression. It has perverted the memory of the greatest calamity ever to befall the Jewish people, the Shoah or Holocaust, in order to aggrandize itself. Alongside this, it has degraded a great world religion, Judaism, and fostered the rise within it of a narrow fundamentalism and stifling orthodoxy, a tool to the needs of the state. It has severely undercut the principle of lawfulness through its flouting of innumerable UN resolutions designed to check its behavior. Most seriously, it has actively contributed to the deadly spread of nuclear weapons by withholding its own arsenal built clandestinely with the disgraceful collusion of the United States from any international covenant. It has further and bizarrely entangled itself with the United States, doing the latter's dirty work in a relationship that has deeply corrupted American politics and driven American Jewry into a moral abyss. Said dirty work has included material support for a great many vicious regimes whose chief stock and trade has been violent repression, for example, apartheid South Africa, with whose weapons industries Israel worked hand in glove and to whom Israel smuggled automatic weapons and other anti-personnel devices to violently suppress its uprisings in its own bantustans and streets, disregarding the will of the international community. This culminated in working hand in glove with the apartheid regime to help it build nuclear weapons. It has hastened, Israel has hastened, the environmental degradation endemic to capitalist society by its demographic pressure, its oppression of Palestinians, its militarism, and its lawlessness. To all of these charges, the Zionists will respond. It's not our fault, but that of Arab barbarism, terrorism, and the anti-Semitism that is built into the human genome and persecutes the Jews down through the ages. This is the intellectual surface of the above-mentioned moral abyss. Hopefully, the arguments advanced in this work will have helped to put to rest this shameful line of reasoning by exposing the roots of the problem in the Jewish state and the Zionism that animates it. Having demonstrated so much, however, only takes us to the threshold of what matters. What can be done about this state? How can a just peace arise in the tormented land of Israel, Palestine? Now, Um, That's where my informal remarks tonight will build. I submit to you that this list of indictments uh, is corroborated uh, in considerable detail in the 190 pages which precede it, and I'd be glad to fill in any of the blanks, but I want to start with that. You're
0: listening to Joel Covell. Today's show, Overcoming Zionism. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is guns and butter.
2: These phenomena are—they're driven by certain conditions, and, and I want to talk some about them and talk about them in a in a multi-levelled way, uh, including with what happened to this book itself, uh, because uh, overcoming Zionism was received with uh, tremendous indifference and silence by the official world of uh, media of all sorts. It still, as a matter of fact, hasn't had an above ground review uh, in any liberal publication, any newspaper, uh, any kind of note. And uh, I will say that I expected as much because I'm familiar with the terrain and how it works with, the, with uh, books and statements that stand outside of the accepted consensus of what is allowed to be sayable in our fair society. but. Uh, I was hoping for better, and indeed I got better. In the, uh, I mean, I got better news in the middle of the summer, in August to be exact, when the book's distributor, the University of Michigan Press, received a broadside from a group called "Stand with Us, Michigan." A, a word of explanation: the book is published by Pluto Press, a British publisher, uh, to which I turned after failing to get an American publisher. And Pluto has to be distributed, and it's distributed by the University of Michigan, of course a very major, powerful liberal institution with a, with a splendid record of defending uh, civil rights and uh, anti-discrimination measures and the like. And all, here comes this, stand with us, Michigan, to say that, ah, Covell, here's a book, Covell, which is anti-Semitic in its core. This book is, is, a, is an abomination, it is, a, it is a disgrace to the University of Michigan to carry this book and to carry books of similar, uh, stripe from the Pluto press, and uh, we just want you to know that we're going to keep after you until you get this book off the, the list. And uh, well, when I saw that, I was actually shocked, and uh, but kind of elated in a way, too. I said, ah, maybe I, maybe I hit the jackpot, you know, <laughs> and uh, um, maybe my book has really made a difference. It's got un, under their skin, you know, uh, first benign neglect, and now... Let's see if we can kill this. Uh, And lo and behold, 72 hours after these uh, diatribes appeared, uh, the editorial director of the University of Michigan Press, a man I had known for 20 years, sent me an email which said, in so many words, uh, that he started out with the assumption that he wanted to... um, protect and defend my book because of the principles of free speech, but that after reading the book, because he hadn't read it before he said, which is really a lie I think, but in any event he said that, and uh, uh, that he was, quote, appalled by the vicious and hateful attack that I had made on all the uh, institutions of Israel and how, how, how completely beyond any limit this book was and that therefore it could not be defended as free speech because it was hate speech. And, and, and as a result, he's going to drop it from the list of the University of Michigan Press. Now, setting aside the nonsense that uh, a profound misinterpretation of what the defense of free speech is, which is that you defend something not because you like it, but because it's, it's there and it should be heard by, by the general public. And indeed, if it's hateful, well, you should still defend the right to say it. You also might say, well, you've heard, you've heard me read several pages from the book, which are fairly... Well, let's face it, they're not friendly to the state of Israel. Uh, they're, they're, they're fairly serious critiques, but, uh, and then undoubtedly animated by outrage. Uh, but to say this is hate speech is perhaps a bit of extreme, is it not? Because hate speech is just something that's unmodulated hate. I, I do think that I managed to put together uh, my anger into a, a, a sequence of logical arguments and expressed with some degree of... Um, decorum and, and, and style and, uh, uh, you know, it's just not plain haste But even if it were, they shouldn't have done what they did, which is ban it, okay? Effectively burn it because, you know, if you don't distribute a book, then the processes of atmospheric degradation take over, and it as- it's a slow burning of the book. You keep it on the shelf long enough, it'll disappear. And nobody will read it. It'll be a tree that fell in the forest and nobody heard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now this tells us some very, Important things, obviously, it tells us that uh, liberal institutions, uh, which Michigan is one and others uh, could stand in their place, are maybe internally contradictory, and that the their hold on the principles of democratic discourse is perhaps a tenuous one. That there is some kind of internalized signal that the publisher, rather the distributor here, uh, picked up that triggered his own panicky response, uh, which was a, a dreadful mistake, by the way, because aside from issues of free speech, he was violating a contract, since the contract says they have to distribute the books of Pluto. And in fact, when the University of Michigan, his superiors, found this out, they were pretty angry at him. They said, you can't do this. So They actually put the book back in, but then they tried to get rid of Pluto Press, which went on for several months. So we rallied. as a group. You can look it up on the internet. It's called codz.org. its Committee for Open Discussion of Zionism, which is the principle behind it, .org, dot org, and you have details about this struggle, which, which hopefully enough got 650 letters written to the University of Michigan supporting this book and Pluto Press, all of which uh, suffice to turn them around and re- reinstate the book, which is why we can have this event today, and you can buy the book, although we don't. Have enough copies, um, but they're out there, and you can get them, and that's a good thing. But you know, notice it's a good thing because there was struggle. There were several struggles. Uh, people were willing to stand up and denounce a great university for its violation of the principles of a university. And in writing this book, I had taken. The strategic goal in mind of simply disregarding a whole set of taboos. I'm going to talk to you about more of these more of these taboos in a bit, but it seemed to me that it was a very important principle, and it's one that we all should should take upon ourselves to write in this sphere with the utmost uh, candor and disregard for. Those constrictures on discourse uh, that that pertain to the state of Israel and 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 the Zionism that animates it, and this is particularly critical in this area because you know there's a great many controversial areas in our society, but there really is nothing comparable to this for the sense of moral uh, tension and, and contradiction and and the explosiveness that it exists in it. And in fact, I, in developing the text of the book, brought forth a concept which I called, and I'm happy I did this, called Zionism's Bad Conscience. And that bad conscience has to do with the following, that people who adhere to the Zionist ways, and which is essentially can be stated in the following terms, that The historical destiny of the Jewish people is to have a state of, for, and by them in historic Palestine. This is the destiny and the fulfillment of the Jewish people. The state of Israel is not a state even for the Jewish people within its borders, but for all the Jews in the world, and I bet there's probably half of the people in this room are Jewish. I'm Jewish by background, uh, therefore I am entitled to apply for membership in the State of Israel any time I want, well, not you know they 're not going to take me after what I wrote, but <laughs> no way <laughs> but nor may if it 's any any tension on this point i don 't intend to apply for citizenship in the state of israel but um, Anyone, I could have a year ago, would have gotten it easily because my mama was Jewish and that makes me Jewish and this is according to the logic of Zionism, the only way I can become a true Jew and a true human being is to be a citizen of the State of Israel and endorse its policies and the State of Israel therefore has to be a Jewish state, otherwise Jewish people don't exist as human beings and that's, that's a really powerful problem, isn't it? I mean, that, 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 that has explosive contradictions built into it. Last night I spoke up in Chico, a similar talk, and the guy who introduced me said that one of his friends who's Jewish, he was himself not Jewish, but he said he had a, a Jewish friend who, when he heard about the talk, said, I can't go to this talk. I uh, said, well, why? He said, well, because I mean, if I take seriously a, a horrible talk like this, uh, then my identity as a Jew is shattered. Uh, you may laugh, but isn't that a serious question? I mean, if you feel at your identity, that's to say your, your, your coherence and, and the extension as a human being, your integration with the life of your times, with the past and, the, and your goals and the future, uh, is dependent upon loyalty to this state, Okay. And if you're so afraid of listening to any criticism of the state, then you have a very, very fragile state of identity, and your whole life is going to be constricted and constrained. Now, I don't want to say this is a tragic situation. If if the man had come to me and had told me that, well, should I attend your lecture? Because it might shatter my identity as a Jew. Um, and this is really what he said. I, I, Listen, I've been a psychoanalyst, all right? I stopped being it, but I was really into that. And I would say to himself, deep interpretation. I'd say, get over it, (laughs) you know? Get over it. You're a grown-up, you know? Uh, It's not the end of the world. And then I'd say something else. I'd say, you know, sir, hypothetical sir, you should be a bit ashamed of yourself. Maybe not guilty, but ashamed of yourself uh, for... Uh, Worrying about your identity when your identity depends upon so supporting a state that does the things that I just iterated and which can be demonstrated by any glance at any one of a hundred historical sources and and references that that you're going to say that your identity depends on a a state that torments and tries to annihilate an entire people. That in order to preserve your Jewishness, you're going to have to blind yourself to what is going on in the world. Is this a worthy way of living your life as, as anybody, Jew or not? I mean, I think there's a tremendous crisis here, but the bad conscience of Judaism. Which is exhibited by that phenomenon or by Benny Morris's phenomenon because he goes nuts when he has to deal with the fact that he really wanted these transgressions to take place.
0: You're listening to Joel Covell. Today's show overcoming Zionism. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: You see, the problem with Zionism, the, the moral abyss, that I, this is the moral abyss that it sucks Judaism into. The problem with Zionism is that it's, it's one of the existential options open to Jewish people the close of the 19th century. There may, roughly speaking, were four of them. One was to continue in traditional ways and become pious and you know, move into the orthodoxies and retreat from the world and live your life that way, which is a perfectly free choice to make you know within religions there's an otherworldly or aesthetic quality then there's the worldly side so there are three worldly choices for Jews to take one most of the people here in this room who are Jewish are manifestations of that choice which is to join uh, the migrations to the western capitalist advancing modernist nations from the eastern European warrens where most of the Jews of the world live in central Europe and eastern Europe over four million people migrated in the period, 1880 to 1920, than Jewish people. And of course, to this country in particular, where the Jewish people became so extraordinarily successful. And the chap who said he couldn't come to my lecture last night undoubtedly was one such manifestation because he had been a professor at Chico State and all that, which is pretty successful. So, um, that's, Option two, or the first of the worldly options, the second of the worldly options was to try to transform society. And society, In this respect, there's, of course, class society. It's capitalist society, but it's also the society that was persecuting the Jews because persecutions of Jews were actually mounting towards the end of the 19th century. As any intelligent person could see, a tremendous uh, uh, historical crisis brewing as the tectonic plates of the history of that time converged towards towards the catastrophic developments that we know from the First and Second World Wars and the rise of Nazism, the rise of Bolshevism, and the... the the terrible struggles that ensued leading up to, of course, the Holocaust. So this is not uh, a trivial matter, but the option, the second option, the worldly option, is the one that I myself endorse as a Jew, which means that maybe I'm not, uh, an ordinary Jew because my option is to try to transform society. To do that, I have to take a universal perspective. I have to uh, not accept the terms of anti-Semitism and try to transform a society that generates anti-Semitism. The last option, Zionism, is to leave that society, build a nation-state in historic Palestine, and that means correlatively to accept the terms of anti-Semitism. It's a really interesting quotation from a man named Jacob Klotzen, who was the uh, editor of the Encyclopedia Judaica in 1927. This is obviously a very extremely learned and influential Jewish man in the community. And he said, uh, this is a quote, it's from Lenny Brenner's very important book, Zionism in the Age of Dictators. Klatsen says, if anti-Semitism is not true, then Zionism cannot be true. Anti-Semitism being true means that the Jew is perpetually to be an outcast, that the Jew has no place or role within European society, that the only thing to do is to actually leave, which is exactly what the, the anti-Semite would like, a more benign interpretation. So that expulsion in that level, and rather than social transformation, is is preferable. Okay, And uh, that indeed is, One of the deep contradictions of Zionism because as the Zionists learned, if they wanted to have their nation state, they couldn't do it on their own. They had to do it with a powerful patron, so they also would have to become the clients of a great imperial power. So even as they were talking about You know, anti-Semitism must be true they also were talking of themselves as an outpost of the West in this area of historic Palestine now the next level of contradiction has to do with the fact that although the Jews wanted a nation state they were not by any true sense of the word a nation at that point simply because of the fact that for several thousands of years they had lived all over the planet and had no particular allegiance to any territory which is what's necessary for nationhood Um, there's nothing wrong with that it made the Jews uh, uh, what Stalin would call rootless cosmopolitans, and that, I, you know, I don't agree with much of Stalin, to say the least, but I think that's okay, and I, I think it's all right to be a rootless cosmopolitan. It's a rather interesting way of being, isn't it? I mean, let's hear it for rootless cosmopolitanism. <laughs> uh, you can put that on your website or something like that. So, um, but the Zionists were caught up in, in, in all of these contradictory matters, and it's very important to bear in mind that they weren't a true nation, but they wanted to be a state, which meant they had to obtain the territory to be a state on, and had to do it, needless to say, by conquest. Because if they wanted habitable territory, that habitable territory is filled with inhabitants, and inhabitants do not like to be displaced. There has never once been an instance in the history of the world when a colonized people welcomed the colonizers and said, "Oh, great, take my take my land; it's a free gift." You know, uh, particularly in this case, I mean, not particularly, but it's even more poignant in this case because the. Displaced people were already oppressed people who had been living under the yoke, a rather benign yoke on the whole, nonetheless the yoke of the Ottoman Empire for centuries and had themselves no autonomy. And all of a sudden here come these Europeans saying, would you please step aside? We would like to have your land. Now that's not going to work unless violence is achieved. The Jewish fascist cum revisionist, Vladimir Jabotinsky, of course, was very clear about that back in the 1920s, and although the mainstream of Zionism abhorred him and and wouldn't uh, agree with anything of the sort, if you look at their inner councils and the things they were writing to themselves, they perfectly agreed, yes, this has to be a violent process. It cannot take place except by force of arms. And just think of the contradiction there when this conquest, which is transgressive in the extreme because is what's worse than robbing the land of an entire people is carried out by people who do so in the name of their innocence and victimhood. And this is, of course, the the Jewish identity. Victimhood, innocence, and indeed ethical superiority. I was fed this diet as a nice Jewish boy in Brooklyn from my early days, and I'm sure many of you would agree that this is indeed the, the ethos of being Jewish. Now, this is when you're stuck with the, the practice that demands constant transgression and the identity, which is there, that you are a higher being, you're going to be on very thin moral ice for eternity. Okay? And a number of things are going to happen, one of which is you're going to be extremely sensitive to criticism and likely to lash out at critics, either calling them anti Semites, which, see, Zionism is trying to escape anti-Semitism, but also is dependent upon anti-Semitism. That's another layer of contradiction. If they didn't have anti-Semitism, then they have no way to account for the criticism that others, including other Jews like myself hurled Or the Jew is supposed to be self-hating. If you think I'm self-hating, well, all right. I mean, I can't help it. I, you know, I can't prove that I'm not self-hating, but you observe me, do you think I'm self-hating? I don't, okay. End of case, all right. I'm not a self-hating Jew. I'm a Zionist-hating Jew, okay. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Can't help it, you know, and uh, I, I admit I have a certain harsh conscience. I mean, the conscience tells me that if I don't speak out against this, what I consider monstrosity of Zionism, that I laid out its indictment in the book for you to read and listen to, that my conscience tells me if I don't do that, then I'm not a worthwhile person. And, well, a good human being, a good human being. I don't know if I'm a good human being, but I know a not good human being is somebody who allows... Uh, this to be gotten away with when it is his own country and his own community that has contributed so deeply to it. So that is you know, my ethos. And in a sense I fear my own conscience more than I fear the external authorities and let the external authorities do what they will to me, I have to speak what I think is true. I think this is not a bad way of dealing with this situation. But when you do so, you're going to create a lot of problems. Now, the reason you create these problems is that there is this massive machine called the Israel lobbies. And we have to understand that these lobbies, of which stand with us Michigan, is one extrusion, one, uh, one layer upon other layers that... Uh, they exist for a very definite purpose. One is they exist within the logic of the bad conscience. They, they become, so to speak, that institutionalization of the tendency in the bad conscience to lash out at cr- critics. And the, in this case, the critics include you know, intellectuals like myself, but also politicians. Um, it turns out that in making a deal with Empire, first Britain, and that they cast that off, but now the United States. The fact of the matter is, and you Perhaps all know this, but I want to absolutely reinforce it. Absent the support of the United States, the State of Israel would collapse. It's been that way for a long time, and even though it's very powerful with the fourth largest military in the world and so on, its whole being depends both on the military and economic support on the one hand, but also, and just as importantly, the political support, the the kind of backing up in the UN for all of its transgressions. And I want to just get at this notion a little bit more deeply so you can see what is driving this creature known as the Zionist State of Israel. Because the United States is necessary for Israel, but it's necessary for Israel to do things that are extremely uh, criminal and, and, and transgressive, things that the American people and actually the American Jewish people themselves would reject if they knew anything about in depth or in this condition of being able to look calmly and dispassionately at this. And that kind of, a, of a, a condition means that Israel is extremely sensitive to anything getting out in the way of free discourse and, and open debate. Uh, they can't afford it, really. And the Israel lobby, with its various repressive arms, which we haven't analyzed, but we can do so later, exists to stifle any kind of debate because any kind of debate would begin to open up uh, a, a, a very dark side of the state of Israel that would cause the support to rapidly dissolve. Okay. It will most rapidly dissolve in an area that I'm going to turn to shortly, but I just want to emphasize the reason the Israel lobby is so raucous and absolute is twofold. One is because that's the inner dynamic of the bad conscience. The other is it is necessary in order to defend this indefensible relationship with the United States. Slightest deviation from that, the whole thing can come crashing down. That is why the politics of anti-Zionism is actually a very hopeful politics because you can make very big changes with rather small interventions. And the times are in fact changing in this respect because thanks to the unholy relationship between the US and Israel, as you know, we have gotten into this nightmarish war in the Middle East and Again, if you want to take that up in question period, you can go into the, the details of it. But the fact of the matter is the Iraq war would not have happened without major interventions from the state of Israel. And since the Iraq war has turning into such a nightmare and such a horror, it's starting to provoke questioning of Zionism on the part of the, even the ruling classes. And so there's an inter-ruling class division here, which has major implications. You're listening to Joel Covell.
0: Today's show... Overcoming Zionism, I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Two books besides from my own, I mean, there are a bunch of books like mine, or Ali Abimina's or Virginia Tilley's, other books that have been very critical of Israel, but we're sort of, you know, on the left. But there are two books from the center that have come out that have had major impacts. One is the Walton Mearsheimer book, which came out first as an article in the Atlantic Monthly and then came out as a book last fall, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy written from a perspective of U.S. realism in foreign policy. In other words, one that I myself would disregard and and gives much too much credence to the basic uh, uh, ethos of of Zionism, but nonetheless says that Israel has become a strategic liability and so forth. This is basically the, the, the mainstream from the first Bush administration reasserting its power through the Chicago and the uh, University of Chicago and Harvard Kennedy School uh, over the neoconservative ultra Zionists that the second Bush administration brought into power. That's the struggle going on. It's an important struggle. The other one is is given away in the title of the very book written by President Jimmy Carter. And this is the key point here. I wanna dwell on increasingly in the last part of my talk. He writes this book a little over a year ago called Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. Ooh, Apartheid. Oh, my goodness gracious. Now, um, if you know anything about this, you'll know that there has been efforts over the course of time to identify the state of Israel and Zionism with racism. Uh, Strange, isn't it? I mean, you know, you might as well identify uh, the Pope with being Catholic. I mean, it's the same (laughs) basic principle. I mean, you have to be racist if you're a a Zionist Jewish state, okay? Because this gets back to the bad conscience. How are you going to justify the ethnic cleansing that is your salient project that you have to do to sustain your, your Jewish identity with this Jewish state unless you derogate and dehumanize the people to whom you're doing this. You cannot, if you treat them as full equal human beings, then you have to give them full equal political rights. If you treat them as monsters or even as non-existent, like Golda Meir did in 69 when she said they don't exist, you know, this crazy stuff, but it it reveals the abyss in the the Zionist heart there. uh, Then you can say, well, they don't exist or they don't exist as human beings or they exist as, as barbarous, uh, terrorists. In, in fact, that's the game that Obama is playing when he says oh my god, Israel is being beset with these, with these terrorists who are launching the, the weapons at them, you know the, the missiles at their towns completely disregarding what's causing the whole process or, which is to say disregarding the actual humanity of the Palestinian people and therefore perpetuating the the terror and, and, uh, and annihilation of Palestinian society. So, uh there is nothing more salient than the charge of racism. When it was passed by the uh, U.N. Assembly in 1977, I believe it was, maybe earlier, uh, it produced a great deal of consternation, and the U.S. gradually fought to get it reversed, finally got it reversed in 1991 through the exercises of one John Bolton, who became you know, U.N. ambassador under Bush, a highly dubious character to say the least, and. Uh, Uh, an example of a Christian Zionist because Bolton is anything but Jewish but is an ardent defender of the state of Israel. Um, In 2001, it took a trip by Colin Powell to disrupt the Durban Conference on Racism which was going to renew that charge against Israel. Powell came in and, and bullied his way around and basically walked out and kind of wrecked the conference because once again Zionism was going to be called racism. Now, in 2006, or early 2007, I forget the exact date, comes Jimmy Carter, again, member of the liberal center foreign policy, wanting to express his, his displeasure with the Bush administration's full spectrum dominance and preemptive warfare and the like, comes in, puts that word apartheid in the title. And this time it sticks because there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, they can scream at Carter, but the more they screamed at Carter, we're using the Zionist lobby mentality the more did Carter's books sell <laughs> that the publisher originally printed 330,000 copies, it sold 500,000 copies I don't know how many people read the book, it doesn't matter it planted the idea apartheid Because let's face it, they don't have to be very sophisticated intellectually to draw the conclusion. Hmm, apartheid, I heard about that. That was South Africa. what what happened to South Africa? Oh my gosh, we changed it. We got rid of that racist state. Oh, well, if Israel is apartheid, what next, okay? And that is so important, you cannot imagine. Uh, You know, I mean, power, as Hobbes pointed out, is the capacity to give names and enforce definitions. Uh, uh, you can, if you can enforce the definition that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism, then people will be deeply troubled to make that criticism. And even Jews who really are not fond of Israel will be reluctant to speak out for fear of being daubed with that dreadful term. Okay. Uh, same thing, power declares any notion that Israel is a racist society off limits. But any, any sentient person looking at this society would say it's not only a racist society, but it's about as racist a society as can exist by any measure of that term. In fact, Bishop Tutu, you know, the, the uh, Nobel laureate and leader of the black liberation struggle in South Africa, when asked after a visit, is Israel a apartheid state like South Africa? He says, no, no, no. It's really worse. It's really worse. And he's right. It is worse. It's really worse because apartheid's point was to preserve enough of black integrity so that they could function as workers. They had to get up in the morning and be able to work in the mines and the mills of the South African powerhouse. Israel's job remains to annihilate them and get rid of them. That's a big difference, but it's a big difference within the framework of racism, but not just racism that you find on the streets, but racism that's structured at the level of the state. Now, having gotten to that point, which is the key point of the book's reasoning, I would go on and say this. Since the goal here is to break with taboos and disregard them, including taboos of criticizing Israel, against criticizing Israel or taboos against calling Israel racist. What about the next taboo which is maybe the last bastion of, the, of their defense which is that Israel is truly flawed no doubt but in the words of many people including Walton Mersheimer and many liberals who give talks and say at the beginning of the talk oh well I know Israel has problems but let's Let's begin with saying Israel has the right to exist. Israel has the right to exist. And that is a statement that is almost always accepted without any reflection at all. But if you think about it for a minute, it's an extremely permeable and dubious statement that has almost no reality behind it. Because if Israel has the right to exist, which by which we mean to say that it should be, always be what it is, namely a Jewish state, that preserves a Jewish majority, i.e. a Zionist state. If that is the case, then Israel is different from all other states because no other state has the right to exist. Uh, I'm not saying states necessarily should be made not to exist, but the history of the state is, at least the history of the modern state, is that it's established as not having an inherent right to exist, and that principle is enunciated in our own Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson, okay? that is the basis of the democratic idea. And Jefferson went further by saying, you know, I think it'd be better to have a revolution every 20 years to clean out the state and change it basically. I don't mean, we don't mean changing the government now, we mean changing the nature of the social contract. That's the difference. Israel can have one prime minister or another and so on. But as long as it has the right to exist, that's all it will have. But the question is, why must you accept that right to exist? It doesn't hold. Water, and it's just another taboo that deserves to be overcome with all the others. And when you do, a rather interesting perspective opens up. You can begin thinking of maybe working very hard over a very long period of time with many, many people from around the world, joining hands with people of goodwill, people of goodwill palestinian people goodwill people within israel who currently are not at anywhere close to this state of mind where they might contemplate the existence of a basic change but who can be brought to that position why because their state is hopeless okay it is going nowhere and you have, to, you have to establish this point. You can do it through many different ways by, by the series of indictments that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, or you, you can do it by exploring the logical or practical impossibility of making any real changes along the lines of a two-state solution. The two-state solution which people talk about as having a Palestinian state alongside an Israeli state is, is wrong on any number of levels, okay? Uh, it's, it's practically impossible because the Israel occupation has destroyed the possibility of a second state emerging in any coherent way, any coherent way at all, not the least because of these 450,000 settlers who shouldn't be there, who constantly steal Palestinian land and dump their garbage and their waste on the rest of Palestine. It's, it's a total wreck. Okay. You, It's impossible to conceive of a real state being built in that point. More than that, nobody in power has ever talked about the Palestinian state as being a sovereign state, as being a state that has control of its foreign policy, Charlie controls its borders, it has its own sovereign institutions, its own army. They never talk about that. They only talk about the Palestinian state being kind of a reasonably cleaned up affair that... Palestinians can live in with some degree of dignity and uh, under the tutelage of the Israeli army. In other words, the two-state solution, as it's talked about, is actually a measure to bring Israel up to the level of South Africa in the apartheid era. It doesn't get any better than that. And if you thought apartheid South Africa did not deserve a life, which we all did, and people of goodwill around the world did, then why should you not make the same claim for Israel? There's no reason... No reason not to make that claim. Because the two-state solution is simply an apart- a, a, a Bantustan arrangement. arrangement. Okay. So you have the existing one-state racist solution, which is producing nightmares. You have the impossibility on a moral, political grounds. Another thing with the two-state solution is that if they had a, a Palestinian state, say, in the territories, you know what? One of the first things they'd want to do in Israel is to expel the Israeli Arabs to that state, because that's their logic. And they can do it, and they would want to do it because the two-state solution would preserve the Israeli state in its given form, which, as we've seen, is a machine for manufacturing human rights abuses and ethnic cleansing. We have 60 years of proof of that. Case closed, as far as I'm concerned. I think it's just moral cowardice to try to, to think, well, maybe they're going to reform. They've been given every chance in the world that should be transformed, not reformed. That's my view of it, okay? And I want to just close this by, by putting this on the, the moral plane which it deserves to be. In my view, I've given a lot of thought to this, I think that the struggle against Zionism is the moral equivalent of the struggle against slavery. I think it has the same moral weight as the struggle against slavery, Okay, it is, you know, we, we talk about the Bible as a, as a book full of horrible tales and which can be used to justify any and all crimes, including the crimes of Zionism, uh, because, you know, the Zionism can only legitimate itself on the basis of the five books of Moses, because that's the only common text that the Jews have for their history, uh, since they were never a true nation. Uh, Yes, and we must be very critical of that, and I try to be critical in my book, but the Bible also contains the nuclei of great moral narratives, okay? And when people say, you know, to Pharaoh, let my people go, and, you know, or that my people are enslaved, which, by the way, probably never happened to the ancient Israelites, but nonetheless, the, the narrative in the Bible has been the the line that, you know, goes through every emancipator who looks towards the possibilities of, of freeing a whole people. We're talking, the, the moral critique of slavery, the fight against slavery, is because a whole people is is enslaved. And enslavery means a whole people is subjected to the superior power and, and illegitimate authority of another people. You know, this, is something that occurs in the context of civilizational clashes or racial divides where peoples are opposed this way. So the peoples of Palestine are enslaved by the Zionist state of Israel. That is basically, they may not be enslaved in the sense that, you know, black African slaves, but they were enslaved by growing American colonies, and the young American republic, but they are enslaved nonetheless because their entire being is forfeited to the illegitimate power of an alien force. And this enslavement is much larger than the the territorial space in which it's carried on. After all, it's an encapsulation of the whole narrative of European conquest of the south, carried forward. This is the the late 20th century and early 21st century version of something that began with Columbus, that was continued, you know, with the the invasions of Africa. the, The whole outward expansion of European colonialism into all the lands of the world is now recapitulated in historic Palestine. So the struggle there is really not simply a struggle for the dignity of the Palestinians, although it certainly is that. It is a struggle against the entire exercise of Western tyranny over the South and the others therein. And therefore, I think that once we liberate ourselves from the taboos of of criticizing the state of Israel, we're in the position of moving forward to a condition where however long and however drawn out and however complex the process, We have before us the possibility of a genuinely emancipatory movement which is worthy of the moral and political efforts of all people of goodwill around the world. And I am very glad that I have joined this struggle, and I'm glad that all of you are here tonight and call on you all to join it as well. Thank you.
0: been listening to author Joel Covell. Today's show has been Overcoming Zionism. Joel Covell is currently Professor of Social Studies at Bard College in New York. He has had a varied and distinguished career as a scholar and as an activist, and is a former psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. In 1998, he was the Green Party candidate for U.S. Senate from New York. Joel Covell is the author of nine books, including The Enemy of Nature, The End of Capitalism, or The End of the World. He is editor of the scholarly quarterly Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Information on his recently released DVD criticizing Al Gore's position on climate change, A Really Inconvenient Truth, is available at www.areallyinconvenienttruth.com. Joel Covell's most recent book, Overcoming Zionism, Creating a Single Democratic State in Israel-Palestine, became the center of much controversy in 2007. Today's presentation by Joel Covell was given on February 15, 2008, in Berkeley, California. The event was sponsored by the NorCal Support Group of the International Solidarity Movement and by the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists Social Justice Committee. Visit his website at www. Dot Joel dot org. That's www.joelcovel.org Audio for today's program was recorded for Guns and Butter by Dave Heller. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at bl faulkner at yahoo.com that's b-l-f-a-u-l-k-n-e-r at yahoo.com our website www.gunsandbutter.net is under reconstruction
1: hey yo these are some serious times that we live in g and our new world order is about to begin you know what i'm saying now the question is are you ready for the real revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you seek for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me?